So tonight we have a special guest, folks. We have Professor Elizabeth Loftus. She's a world-renowned leading expert on memory. She's best known for her scientific research on the misinformation effect, false memory, and her criticism and critiques of recovered memory therapies. In addition to being a distinguished professor of psychological science, criminology, law and society, cognitive science, and law at the University of California, Irvine School of Law, she's provided expert testimony and consultation for lawyers in over 300 court cases, I hope that number's right, correct me if it's not, including uh, legal teams involved in the Maxwell case, Harvey Weinstein, Ted Bundy, O.J. Simpson, Robert Durst, in addition to that, she's written some great books, including The Myth of Repressed Memory, False Memories and Allegations of Sexual Abuse, and Witnesses, Witness for the Defense. Welcome, and thank you for joining us tonight. Well, thank you for having me. Joseph, over to you. So, you know, it, it, we're seeing a resurgence, particularly in Canada, of recovered memory and experts testifying about um, how memory is encoded. And so we're, we're very thankful to have you on. So you had this very interesting model that we were looking at, which um, speaks about the memory unreliability model. And we'd like to really turn it over to you to talk about the, the process. Although, you know, this is old stuff for you. We'd like to really talk about the process of it. And, and if you can give us some, some brief outline of it, then we can delve into some specific areas. Way early on in my uh, career and involvement in legal cases, uh, I and, and many others were doing studies of where we tried to simulate what the kind of thing that happens when people might see a crime or an accident and later on have some new information that they're exposed to. They get interrogated or they talk to other witnesses or they see media coverage. And in, in simulating this kind of situation, we did, you know, now hundreds of experiments in which people see a crime or an accident. Later on, they get some misleading information. And we basically show that that misleading information can contaminate or distort uh, somebody's memory. So we can pretty easily make people believe that the car went through a stop sign instead of a yield sign or that the the bad guy was wearing a brown jacket instead of a green jacket uh changing the details about an event that actually did happen and all this work taught us something about the malleable nature of memory um but i i, I can go further if you or do you want me to stop for a question yeah just, so like keep so going i'm particularly i think we're particularly interested in not just witnessing, but if you are allegedly the uh, complainant or the victim of an alleged abuse, how certain things may impact your perception and ability to recall later on. And for example, if somebody at the time that something happened may be intoxicated or on other illicit substances, and then how that plays out, not just with something which is reported right away, but then when we talk about historical allegations and 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 how the recounting of it can either be influenced or tainted, et cetera. Uh, okay, so that early work did show that you could change memory for the details of an event that was actually experienced, but you can also change memory. Um, you, you can change other kinds of memories by, by exposing people to 
negative um, or, or biasing information. You can uh, get people to remember things as being, you know, more awful, um, more inappropriate, um, less consensual, uh, or, or all kinds of, of, of more negative things. So that work on the malleability of memory does, does also apply to this other kind of situation where uh, people might have an interaction with uh, someone else, but are then exposed to some new information about that alleged perpetrator that, that does distort their memory for what they saw. The, the, you know, the big controversies, though, in the 90s had to do with the claims of massive repression, where, where people were claiming that, you know, they were raped, you know, over a period of five years and, and totally repressed the information into the unconscious uh, and then reliably recovered it later. And, and for that kind of claim, there was, you know, virtually no credible scientific support. Despite the fact that we were seeing those kinds of accusations um, throughout courtrooms uh, all over the world. Yes. So you know you you've written in one of your uh, pieces, contrary to what mo pe most people believe, memory doesn't work like a video camera, uh, with events perfectly preserved. Inaccuracies creep in through imperfect perception or biased inferences or conflation with details from other events. Can you elaborate on that? Because we face this a lot where an allegation may come out two, three years later or four years later. It could be in the context of a, a bad divorce. It could be in the context of somebody who is in therapy, then starts to look back at a relationship and see it in a different way. And um, there's a, a, a push that we fight, which is the memory is still not tainted. It's accurate. And uh, you remember these things just simply because of the trauma of it, regardless of how small inconsistencies may or may not be relevant. That I get. It's sort of the bigger picture I'm interested in. Well, I, I mean, what this work on, uh, mostly what I have studied is is post-event post suggestion. And post-event suggestion, you know, just to re reiterate, not be too redundant, uh, can distort or contaminate or transform somebody's memory. Uh, and it can do that by changing memory for the details, but it can also change memory for the way you, you know, feel emotionally about the event or how awful you thought the, or inappropriate you thought the event was. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've seen this kind of thing happen in many cases. There, you know, there are other things that also affect memory that many other psychologists have been, have been investigating. This isn't the only problem, but I, I think this is a major problem when somebody does have some kind of interaction that is somewhat, uh, you know, ambiguous or maybe confusing, but later on it gets labeled as um, horribly awful. And people, in some way, it gets labeled as horribly awful. Other people come along and say, he did something bad to me. Uh, these are the kinds of things that can affect how, how the first person remembers their own past experience. So, for example, you know, I, I, we face a number of cases where um, something happened. Uh, there, there was a relationship two to three years uh, before, and then they meet somebody uh, as a therapist for some other issue in their life. And then they start talking about the relationship. And then the therapist, who may not be um, a, a psychologist, for example, could be, could be just like a counselor. 
But they start to talk about how that relationship, in fact, was unhealthy, that in fact, it, it was abusive of you. That type of, that type of intervention through what we call therapy, um, what would your comment be about it? I know what my comments are about it, but I, you know, you as the expert, I'd like to have your commentary on that. Well, that's 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 an example where something gets something gets labeled in a particular way, and then people start to see it more in the direction of that label. So it it can be a problem if some therapist comes in and says, "I'm you know I'm telling you that's abusive," or "I'm telling you what happened to you is sexual harassment or sexual assault or child sex abuse." It gets labeled that way by, in some cases, an authority figure, which many people believe their therapists are kind of authority figures. Right. And it can have the power to uh, to contaminate the way people the way people reconstruct the past. Sounds like a lot of this is language driven, right? The words you choose, the words an interrogator chooses, a therapist chooses. Uh, well, it, it, you can think of it as language related. I mean, I. I once did a study long ago where we, um, you know, we had people refer to an ambiguous incident as an incident versus a fight. Right. And that affected the way that in that particular study, the way mock jurors reconstructed the event when they were trying to make a decision about guilt or innocence. Um, so, yeah, certain words are are like labels and are uh, and can label an event in a way that shifts the memory in the direction of that label. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, memory unreliability model? We've been uh, studying it quite closely. It looks very interesting. If you could perhaps, we'll later post it on the podcast so people can see it. But I think uh, this was the one you used from the Weinstein trial, the one about acquisition, retention, and recall. Uh, oh, okay. Well, um, it's 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 customary for psychologists to divide the memory process into three major stages. Um, so first, there's an acquisition stage. That's a, a period of time where some event occurs, or sometimes it's a few events. Um, then time passes, and um, that we call that the retention stage. Um, and then after a while, somebody tries to recall what happened or retrieve information from memory or answer questions or give a police report or testify in court. These are acts of retrieval. We call that the retrieval uh, phase. Our job as, as psychologists who study the memory process is to identify the factors that come into play at each of these stages that affect the accuracy of somebody's memory. Um, so, you know, in eyewitness cases, uh, you know, murder, robberies and things like that, there often is a lot more attention paid to the acquisition stage, the conditions of the event itself, the crime, you know, how good was the lighting? How far away was the person? Um, was the person intoxicated or not? Um, uh, in some of these, particularly these delayed memories, uh, sex abuse cases, what what's what's probably more important is what's happening during that retention interval. Are they exposed to a suggestive or biased media coverage? Are they exposed to biased interrogations? Are they exposed to information that other people are making complaints 
Um, and that new information can enter somebody's memory and cause a, a contamination and alteration of memory. So now at the time of retrieval, when you try to tell in your own words what happened or answer questions or testify in court, you're basically testifying based on a contaminated memory. So when you've been retained in uh, criminal trials, is your focus as an expert in primarily the retention period in terms of your analysis for defense? Well, I, I, you know, much of the work, uh, the scientific work I've done is on uh, kind of post-event contamination. So that happens to be a topic that I know exceptionally well and get called to testify about quite a bit. And often that is one of the problems in a particular case. It, it, you know, it really depends on what the case is about. If it's a stranger robbery situation, and let's say it's a cross-racial identification where a, a member of uh, one race has been interacting with a stranger of a different race, then I might talk about what we know about cross-racial identifications, that they're more difficult for people, that people will make more mistakes. Um, but if it's not a cross-racial case, then that factor wouldn't play any role at all. You know, this is not, in, in most much of these um, alleged sex abuse cases, this isn't the issue. The, the identification, usually people are talking about what happened with somebody they know right it depends on you know what, what you know what what's called for what's what's the relevant question in the case um but in in the you know I, I mean if you wanted to i could certainly send you my testimony in glenn maxwell's trial for example that'd be great in yes. that particular case the judge ruled that i i could only testify about the workings of memory no specifics about the specific people or the specific suggestive things that might have happened to them. No mention of how their testimony changed over the course of time. Only the basics of memory malleability. And that, you know, that was the judge's decision in that case. In other cases, uh, an expert could go a little further and say, you know, um, I see some red flags here. That, you know, the story changed from point one to point two. Right. And look what happened in between. There was a mass of media coverage. Uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, multiple accusers getting together for a joint meeting with the plaintiff's attorney, um, who, who's also planning a, a civil suit. You know, and you can you can point to some problem aspects of the case for trying to understand whether you're dealing with an authentic memory or one that's a product of some other process. But, you know, sometimes judges don't allow that that kind of specific testimony. You know, I'm, I'm interested because in Canada, we don't do as much um, publicity with with cases as you do in the United States. That said, I've run across a number of complainants. They have particular language in their statements that could only be derived from doing research online, being exposed to social media and posts and other cases where you just know this language is coming from another source. And I cross-examine on that as to what they've been doing and what they've been viewing. But I find particularly in the last five years, more than ever, um, access to all sorts of sources of information, either accurate, not accurate, whatever, has duly um, impacted people's, the way they come across with their evidence, and frankly, I find, taints their memory. And I just the prevalence of it now, I think is a big problem 
for a number of these sexual abuse cases? Well, they're getting it not just um, not just for the from the internet, but they're also getting it from their therapist. And they're getting it from what the therapist is saying to them in the therapy sessions. And they're getting it from the, the books in the incest book industry that they are directed to read or that they find themselves. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's where they're learning um, the, what the kind of, well, repressed memory aficionados and, and others believe to be true about memory and some of those beliefs that are being transmitted to these accusers are not supported by scientific information. And yet they're being embraced by these patients through this therapist and, and uh, biblio education. So that's interesting. If I can just reflect on that for another moment, because, again, you know, with respect to repressed memory, I mean, where somebody says, you know, for a number of years, I just never remembered this. Re regardless of the therapy, I have a challenging time as just a lawyer not an expert in memory like you, having or placing any reliability in that whatsoever. Well, I, I do think we have to, to stop and realize that sometimes people can have an, a, a, an experience, not think about it for a long time and be reminded of it. Right. That happens. That is ordinary forgetting and remembering. But what has been claimed in these claims of massive repression is something that is too extreme to be explained by ordinary forgetting and remembering. You know, I had a case where she remembered her father raped her between the ages of five and 16, allegedly repressed this more than a, a decade of abuse into her unconscious until she went into therapy when she was 18 or 19. This is kind of too extreme to be explained by ordinary forgetting and remembering. And, 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 and you know, in a way, it, it's not always easy to tell the difference between what's ordinary forgetting and remembering and what is something that's just too extreme and for which there's no evidence. Right. Um, you, you, you kind of know it when you, when you see it, but, uh, but still some of these, these claims that were so prevalent in the 90s uh, and, and even, you know, even later, um, you know, are pretty bizarre. And, you know, and I basically ju would just want to say to the prosecution expert, just just show me the proof that somebody can be raped for a decade and be completely unaware that this even happened to them. Just show me. And have, then maybe I'll change my mind. Have you seen of any type of studies to deal with, the, you know, post case that you know to, to try and tease out what factors they're relying on there's no studies that i've read well and you know these the these repression aficionados will come in with a pile of studies they'll say i know of 70 studies that support the idea of massive repression and in fact i'm teaching many of them right now in my graduate seminar at the university of california irvine and uh, it, it doesn't take very long for my students to see these don't prove repressed memory at all. Well, those articles I refer to as generally junk science. I mean, I've read a lot of those, but anything with any type of validity that you've run across? I mean, it's interesting you call them junk science because uh, some of them get published in peer-reviewed journals, peer-reviewed journals that uh, where the editor and the editorial board are all people who believe in this theory and just love to accept articles that promote the theory 
Um, and that's why, you know, the, the prongs of Daubert are a little bit um, difficult here. I mean, is it published in a, in a peer-reviewed journal? People are creating the appearance of a peer-reviewed journal, and it's right. very hard uh, to, to, you know, for, say, lay triers of fact to, to know why, why this journal is kind of a legitimate one and this one maybe not so much. Big conundrum for jurors. Well, and the judges who are the gatekeepers. Right. Tell us a little bit about uh, our, our, our viewers uh, would probably be very interested to hear a little snapshot of your involvement in a trial, for example, perhaps uh, the Ted Bundy trial, how your expertise was uh, used there? Well, Ted Bundy, I mean, that was very, very early on in my career. Um, and when I got a call from Ted Bundy's attorney back in 1976, <laughs> he was representing a first-year law student at the University of Utah Law School, a man who was accused of an aggravated kidnapping and was identified about nine months later under some, you know, questionable circumstances about the way that identification was conducted. Um, so well, we didn't really know he he would become the Ted Bundy. Right. He was a first year law student um, and he got caught up in this accusation with some issues about the identification. It, it turned out he I, I did testify in that case. He was convicted. It was a bench trial, by the way. The uh, his attorney chose to waive the jury and he was convicted and then he would be uh, uh, extradited to stand trial for something else in another state, eventually end up in the state of Florida, and eventually um, it became the, this prolific serial killer that, and, and was executed. So, but way back, way back then, in the very beginning, he was just a first-year law student but what what interested me was your analysis of of the uh, the uh, I think it was Darange was the uh, witness, where you uh, kind of took took us through or took them through the initial description to the police, her later re recollection, and how her confidence increased over time, as after all the police handling she had experienced. Well, that's a that's another problem I see in a lot of cases. You're asking me about a really old case. You're asking me about. A you know, there's a memory test, <laughs> you know, maybe my 10th case. And now we're up to over 300 trials since the since the 70s. So it's an oldie, but good specific details of that one. I may be a little rusty about. But in general, um, right. in general, what happens that that it can be a problem is that through interactions with a witness, you can artificially increase their confidence level. Um, when somebody goes to a lineup and says, you know, I'm pretty sure I think possibly this guy and, and the off and the officer says, you know, good job or that's who we think it is. That's our suspect. Uh, by the way, uh, we think we found a fingerprint of his. It's going to artificially inflate the confidence of the eyewitness make or victim, making that person more confident more impervious to cross-examination, more influential to the jury, 
and and a problem for a defendant and a defense lawyer. Well, feel free to fast forward to a more recent case if you want to share one that you found particularly interesting. Oh, no. well, you can ask. No, I'll, I'll try to anything you want here. I mean, Joe. Well, you know, I'm I, the Harvey Weinstein case comes to comes to mind because, of course, it's it's very notorious. But what was your role there? with with memory okay that's now there is a there is a difficult one because yeah. i'll tell you my i'll tell you my role in that case uh i i got a call some years ago a few years ago now um when harvey weinstein was first uh, accused from a lawyer in los angeles who was representing him in some potential california accusations um, this was a, a a woman attorney who I had worked for before, worked with before. Really smart, really good, and it it is a it is a big pleasure to work with somebody who's smart and good and prepared and so on. So, you know, I I kind of looked forward to the chance to work with her again on another case. Um, so nothing was really materializing in the Weinstein Los Angeles matter. Um, but over the next year or more, it did materialize with some New York accusations. By this time, I had been uh, exposed to a lot of media coverage myself about Weinstein. And when they wanted me to step in in the New York case, um, I was, you know, not so sure I wanted to do it because, he, he, you know, he was just painted to, to be such a bad person. Um, so I, I, I solved this dilemma for myself by recommending another expert. Hmm. I, I had a perfect other expert for Harvey Weinstein to hire. She, she not only could cover the memory issues, but she had a broader expertise than mine. She studied sexual communication, sexual consent. Well, uh, they, they met her, they liked her, they hired her. And I thought, okay, I'm off the hook. I don't have to worry about this. I've, um, but Harvey, Harvey talked to somebody who, um, said, you know, if it, on the memory issue, really, you, you, you need to talk to Elizabeth Loftus. And, and so Harvey and his lawyers went to the judge and said, we want Loftus too. And surprisingly, I thought possibly the judge would find it a little duplicative, but the judge admitted my testimony. And now I would, if I was not going to do it, I was going to have to withdraw. And then I just said to myself, why are you withdrawing? And I was, I'd be withdrawing because I'd been seduced by the media, which I'd been warning people about for years. Don't let this happen. I'd be withdrawing because I was selfishly worrying about what, how it would affect me and my ability to help other people in the future. I'd always be linked to this. I was going to feel like a coward if I withdrew. And, and so I said, okay, I'll do it. And I went to New York, uh, testified um, again, uh, one of those teaching testimony uh, types of uh, material, just about the, the science of memory. Um, and, you know, a, a, a lot of, well, of course he was, he was convicted of some, of the allegations and not convicted of others. Uh, and um, to, I guess, his and his attorney's surprise, he was given a very harsh sentence uh, for uh, for the particular uh, crimes that he was convicted of. 
Um, so that that was my experience um, with with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, I, I just I found it interesting just because he, you know, I, I sort of want the world to know just because he did some bad things, it doesn't mean he did every bad thing that he was being accused of. Well, that's right, and and I also found it interesting as you talk about it because the publicity out there. Um, was so staggering that by the time you come to trial, very challenging for a fair trial to get an impartial hearing, but then also it even had an impact on you as a witness, as an expert witness. So, you know, those are the oh, dangers. Yeah. Those are the dangers of that type of pretrial exposure on a file. Well, let me bring up another subject with you that I wonder if you two have thought about this and, um, and whether it's uh, an issue in Canada. But um, the issue has to do in these the sexual assault and sexual abuse cases, the admissibility of what you might call me too witnesses, completely right. different people who say this guy did something to me too. Um, they aren't part of the prosecution. They aren't part of the, they aren't a plaintiff in the civil action. They're just people brought in by the prosecution or the plaintiff. Uh, to say he did something like this to me too. I mean, I'll give you one example with our former president. And however you might feel about him, he's being charged in a civil case with raping someone in the Bergdorf Goodman uh, department store. And this, in the civil case, they're allowed to bring in somebody who says he once groped me on an airplane. Different person, different decade, different incident, not part of this case. And he's also, uh, the plaintiff also brings in uh, somebody who says in a different decade, a different location in Mar-a-Lago. I was a journalist. He uh, was giving me a tour of Mar-a-Lago and he planted a big, wet, sloppy kiss on me or something like that. So what is the effect of these Me Too or propensity witnesses and is it fair and you know for people who don't like donald trump they say well maybe he deserved what he got but my reaction to this is if they can do it to somebody who may be unpopular to you they can do it to somebody who's popular and they can do it to somebody who's innocent of the thing they're being charged with and, and this is something that's that's actually been on my mind lately is this fair no, uh, you know, there's a little more leeway in the United States for calling that evidence. We have it as similar fact evidence in Canada, but it has to be very similar evidence to be allowed in. Um, and there has to be not only, to some extent, a temporal connection, but there has to be really a nexus with respect to the allegations. That's done in such a way that it has a striking similarity, that it would go to a modus operandi and therefore has some value uh, as supportive evidence of the of the complainant herself, um, so we have pretty good strict uh, guidelines on it. But it still can be very dangerous and can lead to a wrongful conviction. And in the United States, if you're calling people with very dissimilar allegations spread out, you know, all across time, it's really just propensity reasoning. And in the civil context, it's even more loose than in the criminal. But very very damaging. And everybody, like you said, should be aware. If they can do that to somebody who's unpop unpopular and maybe well-known as a celebrity, it can certainly happen to somebody who's marginalized and innocent. Absolutely. I think, I think, uh, I, I, we, yeah, we think of these things a lot. It's our, it's our business, but. 
Um, we, I think we're running out of time now, but I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Your work has been really inspiring, something we read very carefully and we follow, and we can't thank you enough for not only your hard work and your courage in doing what you do, but thank you for coming on this podcast. Thanks very yeah, my much. My pleasure. I mean, it, it, this went by so fast. I know. We'll have to have you back. Well, you're more than welcome to come back. And if you could send us your testimony, that would be. we'd like to go through it and maybe at some point invite you back. I could send you the actual testimony in, in let's say, Maxwell and Weinstein if you want to read it. Great. That would be wonderful. Thank you very much. I'm sure, happy to. Thank you so much. Well, it's a pleasure meeting you Thanks. virtually. <laughs> Take care and have a lovely day. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 Well, that was great. That was. Wow. You know, so, you know, when you look at that model, I just want to talk about it for a moment. But, but you know, in her, one of her articles, here it is, you know, How the Truth Gets Twisted, uh, which was a 2012 publication um, written by Elizabeth Loft, this, you know, it's she says things which, you know, uh, run contrary to what certain interest groups want to say are true. But I found it very compelling when she wrote, Contrary to what most people believe, memory doesn't work like a video camera. Oh, yeah. With events perfectly uh, preserved. Inaccuracies creep in through imperfect perception or biased inferences or conflation with details from others. Um, You know, without independent corroboration, we can't really know for sure if a memory is true or not. Uh, Usually it doesn't really matter much, but in the circumstances where there is you know, liberty at its stake, it really does matter. Like now, a criminal trial. Yeah, and in Canada, there does not need to be corroboration, but you're left with a complainant's evidence, maybe going back three years, four years, five years. Right. But, you know, in this model, you know, there's good points. And, and it's yeah. we have arguments in cases where, you know, the acquisition period of memory is extremely important. You talk about drugs, alcohol, circumstances, emotions, and arousal. And many will, you know, I have a case that, almost got the trial, but it got adjourned, where we were dealing with a complainant who was intoxicated every day on alcohol, using uh, cocaine, crack cocaine, and sometimes heroin, and would want to say that there's gaps in my memory, but what I do memories, right. what I do what I do is recall accurate. is accurate. Yeah. And then over the retention period and the recall, which was particularly important, was she was exposed to a counselor right. who was telling her negative things about um, my client which I, you know, I was going to go after in cross-examination, or if it does go to trial, I will. I'm trying to convince... Well, reaffirming the negative, external validation. It, but it's extremely pernicious. Oh, of course um, it is. And, you know, she talks about this, and this this we'll have to put up because it's, it's extremely important. But, there, you know, in therapy, and it seems to be rampant, that there is this tainting um, which can, you know, turn a situation, what we call relabeling, from something that may have been innocuous or not so bad or, or, or a positive uh, relationship into something that, which is quite negative and results in charges. So this is this is such great work oh, that she huge. does. Oh, it's huge. And we also have to pay attention to the language being used by the police. It, it, I, I wish we had access to VWAP, somehow get disclosure of any contact the complainants had with. I'm less worried about the police interviews because right. they're on video. they're on video, but VWAP? And, and a lot ma- of the time, you know, I've, I've watched police officers just let it roll. Like, right. they talk. Right. Um, and once they got the story out, then they go back. So I think I've seen, you know, some very good interviews with with trying hard not to. But, right. but you talk about VWAP, what that is, and what other communications. So just explain that 
Again, we've talked so, about yeah. them before. So but typically, complainants have access to victim the victim witness assistance program. It's meant to be a, a support program that guides them through the process. What's next? If they want to have contact um, with the court or the crown, typically it goes through them. But muddled in the middle of all of that is support, whatever that looks like, and whatever language might be used there. And and so I've met I've met some workers who are very good and careful, yeah, careful, very careful, like just directing to resources, right. passing on information, right. being very helpful in that regard. But yes. we run into others where there is a real agenda, agenda, and unfortunately they are unduly influenced by it, and and it becomes a problem. Um, and and then frankly, you know we can find that complainants over time become overly invested and entrenched in their in their allegations such that they will not come off of what are unreasonable assertions that they make. Who knows what other influence there is from counselors or therapists or people in, it's or even people or members, family members. Family members, come on, we see it all the time with relatives influencing young children or parent against parent. And, and let's just say one other thing that, that she raised, which was good. So in the United States, when she was testifying, um, in the uh, the Maxwell case, yes. she was limited to basically the science of how memory right. works. That would be very typical in Canada right. too, because in Canada we have a rule that you can't um, give evidence, an expert can't give evidence on what's the ultimate issue. So for a witness to then go through an interview or other sources and say, this would negative, these would be red flags, this right. would negatively or unreliably impact their evidence would be quite quite unusual in Canada. Right. But you can imagine sometimes calling an expert and putting hypotheticals to say, based sure. upon your scientific work, if somebody were to be exposed to a type of therapy which would essentially give negative impressions of the accused, would that have an impact? Well, from our scientific work and our studies, it absolutely would. Right. I don't think we'd able, I think it would be very difficult. We've had some of that evidence in the past. Mm -hmm. I think Dr. Morris testified about in child-related cases, but we haven't done a good job of opening that no, up. No, we have to push that farther. And and then the Crown uses their experts about memory and how how trauma affects memory, and therefore, if there's inconsistencies, you really shouldn't worry about right, that right. because it's just trauma. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when we talk about this, it's so important right. that that doesn't excuse it. That makes no. it more unreliable. Exactly. Exactly. Well, well, you know, it's going to be. She promised to send us those transcripts. Yeah, I'll follow. It's that U.S., up. but I think we'll. I'd like to read both of them. They'll be valuable and yeah. related, and see. Then I got to get her back for part two. And let me just explain. You're in a suit. Yes. Very nicely dressed, and I'm very casual. Right. I spent the day at a jail meeting a client. I ultimately got him bail, though, so <laughs> he got released. So, uh, so uh, I commend you on on. I should have been in a suit for this interview, but. Um, I was doing some important and difficult okay. work she today. Looked, she, she stayed on, so she'll be back. I'll get her back. This is great. <laughs> so thank you, everybody, for watching. Um, we have the pillows. Where's your pillow? Please. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, and share. And again, we've got great comments coming in, emails. Um, many of our viewers are corresponding with us on a regular basis, and, and that's great because it just... Uh, enhances what we want to produce for you to read um, uh, which we send out uh, over email and in what you view and listen to here on the podcast so thank you very much and let us know the type of experts you'd like to hear from such as the one we just had tonight yeah we're trying to bring on more more yeah. to broaden the discussion and broaden the knowledge base for all of our viewers so thank you have a good night and stay well bye bye